Well, welcome everybody to DHC. My name is John. I am the lead pastor around here. Appreciate you guys coming on out. See if this TV is working for us. Before I forget, let's give Christina a round of applause. Man, she pulled it together even with that hoarse voice. She's working through a call, but man, that girl can still sing even with that. So we are thankful for that. Um, anyway, guys, we are in week two of this series that we are calling It Started With Three. And what we're doing all throughout this Christmas season is we're taking a look at the original family unit, Mary, Joseph, and Jesus. And we're taking a look at how it all started with them. Everything that we celebrate during this season began 2,000 years ago with this special family. And every week, we're kind of diving in deep, taking a look at what's going on in their lives, what the first Christmas really looked like for them. We're trying to learn more about these folks and ultimately trying to find out what we can learn about ourselves in the process. Last week, if you missed it, we took a look at Joseph, Jesus's dad. And one of the things that we learned is that while scripture contains not one single spoken word of Joseph, his actions spoke volumes. And what we looked at is that his life had a tremendous impact on Jesus's life and what we really believe is in his Jesus's ministry. And so if you're interested in taking a look at how that all unfolded, you can go to our website or wherever you get your podcasts. And as always, we kind of archive the videos on Facebook so you can go back and watch those. So today, what I want to do is I want to turn our attention to arguably the most famous woman in all of history, Mary, right? We're talking about Jesus's mom. Now, depending on how you were raised, I mean, if you were raised a Christian, I know many of us were raised Christians, uh, depending on how you were raised, uh, you have a varying experience with Mary, I'll call it. If you were raised Catholic, and I know many of us were raised Catholic, Mary was a major part of your faith. I mean, she really was. She, she was the blessed Virgin Mary, as we would have referred to her as. You may have prayed to Mary. You may have asked Mary to intercede on your behalf and the things that are going on in your life, whether it's with sin or, or whatever else you would pray to Mary for. And you really had a great deal of respect and reverence for the Holy Mother. Now, if you grew up Protestant, and if you don't know, you got your Catholics and everybody else is Protestant, so Lutheran, Methodist, Baptist, whatever. If you grew up Protestant, your exposure to Mary really was limited to a, a Christmas ornament. That's about as close as, as Protestants we kind of get to Mary. And I don't really know how that happened. Maybe during the Reformation, when we pushed back on Catholic theology, we pushed back a little hard on Mary and really almost completely lost sight of how great this woman actually is. But regardless of your upbringing, we all tend to picture Mary looking a little like this. Um, some rosy-cheeked, demure woman, and she's always in this white maxi dress with this sort of flinch, you know, French blue cape. She only had one outfit. This is the only outfit Mary tends to wear in any kind of picture or sculpture you see of her. It's fun. We don't judge her for that. It's, you know, you got what you got. Uh, it works well for her. She looks great. You know, and every, you know, whether you've been to a Christmas pageant, I know many of us have been to Christmas pageants locally. Some of us have been in those said Christmas pageants. Or you've seen a nativity movie. Generally, when they cast Mary, she's always some sweet young girl and there's never any speaking lines. Well, that's Mary to us. She's sweet. She's silent. She's submissive. I'm just wondering how accurate our perception of Mary actually is. And I would argue 
based on the scripture we're going to look at today, that we actually have Mary all wrong. One of the top theologians in America actually described Mary as being a dangerous woman to the powers that be. And based on what I'm going to show you today, I actually couldn't agree more with what Scott McKnight said. So my goal for today is to introduce you guys to the real Mary. Not the Mary we see in pageants, not the Mary we see in nativity scenes or in sort of Hallmark cards. I'm going to introduce you to the Mary that is hiding in plain sight. The Mary that we seem to miss every single year, although it is right in Scripture for us to see. Now to do this, I want to take a look at the Gospel of Luke. He does a great job at giving us some more intimate details of Mary's life. He tells us early on that he actually interviewed folks. We believe that he would have interviewed Mary, which is why we know so much more about her because of Luke's gospel. So we're going to start in Luke chapter 1 in verse 26. And it begins like this. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, let's pause real quick. Notice we're starting in verse 26. So the first 26 verses, he was letting us know about Elizabeth. She is Mary's older aunt. She too was having a miraculous birth, not a virgin birth, but it was a miraculous birth. And Elizabeth was pregnant with who will become John the Baptist. John the Baptist is Jesus' cousin. Okay, a little backstory. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a village in Galilee, to a virgin named Mary. She was engaged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of King David. All right, let's just pause here. Let me give you a couple of stats on Mary. So as we talked about last week, if you're with us, she and Joseph are already legally married. We learned that, yes, it says they were engaged to be married or pledged to be married, uh, but they are legally married. Um, they are not living together yet, and they have not consummated the marriage yet, but they are legally married. Now, historically speaking, because we know it's 2,000 years ago, and in this particular Jewish culture, Mary was probably about 13 years old which is crazy. M maybe 14, at the latest 15, but more than likely she was 13 years old, which is wild to think about a 13-year-old getting married when we have 45-year-olds in this room who are not ready to get married yet, okay? I mean, and if you're getting one of these, we're talking about you. Now, one other important fact about Mary, and we're going to learn this later today when we get to it, but I want to pull this fact right now so that you just know this because it's important and getting a full picture of the real Mary. Mary is known as an Anoween. Okay, this is a, a Hebrew word, Anoween. Last week we learned that Joseph was a Sadiq. Um, Mary is an Anoween. And Anoweens were a class of people that are best described as the pious poor, the pious poor. Now, historically, the Anoween class. Uh, they had about three characteristics that really defined them as a group. Number one, they yearned for justice, okay, because they lived in a society that was corrupt. They lived in a society that really favored the elites, both the religious elites of the time and sort of the socioeconomic elites that lived in that area. So they yearned for justice. Number two, they wanted oppression to end. Rome, who was in charge of that whole area, was particularly coming hard on this group. But as the poor and marginalized, the Anoweens had it coming from all angles, all right? So they yearned for justice. They wanted oppression to end. And lastly, we know that the Anoweens would gather together at the temple and they would console each other with the hope 
of a Messiah. That soon, prayerfully, God would send a Messiah into this world to just fix all of this. This gives us a clearer picture of, of, of who Mary was. She's 13. She's desperately poor. She's oppressed. She's marginalized. But she's engaged to be married. And so life is about as good as it gets for this young girl. And then an angel appears out of nowhere. We read that Gabriel appeared to her and said, Greetings, favored woman. The Lord is with you. So I don't know what surprised Mary more than the fact that this gigantic angel has appeared out of nowhere or the fact that he considers her to be favored. Because based on her life as a poor, oppressed woman, I'm not sure she would define herself that way. So it says that she was confused and disturbed, but she tried to think of what the angel could mean. He says, don't be afraid, Mary, the angel told her, for you have found favor with God. You, it says, pull it up for them, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be very great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David, and he will reign over Israel. This is key for Mary. He will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. That's a lot of information to drop in the lap of a sixth grader, okay? So I just want you to picture this scene. You got Mary. She's probably in her backyard right now. She's writing, you know, Mary plus Joseph forever in the dirt or whatever. And all of a sudden, Gabriel shows up. Now, Gabriel is not some little angel with a bow and arrow, okay? A Gabriel is huge. We know that these angels were absolutely massive and warlike. So we've got a big boy on our hands. And he shows up to Mary, and he tells her, hey, Mary, look, listen, God's got a plan for your life. You have found favor in his eyes. You're going to have a baby. That baby is going to be the son of God, okay? And he's going to reign over Israel forever. Any questions, Mary? And she just sort of raises her hand and just goes, well, just one, how can this happen? I'm a virgin. She's like, Gabriel, look, I may be 13 years old, but I know some things need to happen in order for this to happen, and those things haven't happened yet, so how's this going to happen? Okay? Now notice, she's not expressing doubt here. She just wants clarification. How is this going to happen? God loves questions. God can work with questions. God tends not to work with what I'll call proud doubters, though. Proud doubters are those folks that, that hear the word of God or hear the things God are doing and goes, I have my doubts about that. That's a proud doubter. God's not really interested in working with that. But she's got a question. She wants to learn more. She's allowing her questions to draw her more into faith. And so Gabriel answers that. He says, all right, here's how it's going to work. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Now, this is interesting. Gabriel uses this word overshadow here, and this is really important imagery because this word overshadow harkens back all the way to the creation story. Let me show you. Genesis 1.1. I mean, like the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was formless and empty. The darkness was over the surface of the deep, and here it comes. And the Spirit of God was hovering, there's our word, over the waters. So Gabriel 
He's talking to Mary and he goes, that same spirit of God that hovered over the waters in the very beginning will now hover over you, Mary, will overshadow you and will create this child. And the reason it's going to happen like this is so the baby to be born will be holy and he'll be called the son of God. Now this year we've talked a lot about God having plans for our lives. We've done a couple of messages on this. This is a particular instance of God giving someone a specific plan for their life. Here's what you're going to do. Here's how it's going to work. And here's how it's going to look. Most of us don't get this kind of detail. Very few people are given specific plans for their life from God. Mary got it. David got it. Moses got it. We don't usually get it. We're given more broad strokes, which actually I find to be a little bit more freeing. But after God gives Mary her plan for her life, and they are huge plans, she takes it all in, she internalizes it all, and she famously responded, I am the Lord's servant. May everything you have said about me come true. And we kind of picture her sort of lowering her eyes and doing a little curse as she says, may it be. Maybe. Let me pause here because this is, no pun intended, a pregnant passage if I've ever seen one, okay? I would argue in this moment that Mary is experiencing two separate emotions, both apprehension and excitement. Two separate emotions simultaneously. So let me, let me show you how this works because I think this is pretty interesting. So Mary would be apprehensive after hearing the plan that God has for her life, she'd be apprehensive because she knows that by saying yes to God's plan, by consenting to God's plan, by submitting to God's plan, she knows that her life would be ripped apart at the seams. We talked about this last week, so I'm not going to belabor the point, but Mary knew what the consequences would be of God's plan for her life. She knew that by saying yes to this plan, that she would immediately be labeled an adulteress. I mean, she was having this child out of, out of wedlock. She would have been an adulteress in the eyes of everybody. She knew that by saying yes to God's plan, it would destroy her marriage. No self-respecting Sadiq like Joseph was would ever stay with someone who, who got pregnant by somebody else. And she knew, because she had studied scripture, she knew that she could potentially be killed for this, either by stoning or by the bitter waters. If somehow, all right, miraculously somehow she was able to escape all of that, the adulterous, you know, comment, if her marriage would make it through, if she somehow, you know, was not going to be killed, if somehow she escaped all of that, she knew her child would still be born illegitimate. And as an illegitimate Jewish man, that would impact his life severely when he got older. So saying yes to God's will for her life was fraught with so many unknown consequences. So the big question I've been asking myself all week is, well, why would Mary say yes to God? I mean, last week when we looked at Joseph, when he said yes to God's plan, the only thing at risk for him was his reputation. That was it. But Mary, it's her life. It, it was her chance to have a normal marriage like everybody wants. And it was her future child's happiness. So why would Mary take that risk? Well, because Mary trusted God. 
Mary knew her Bible, and Mary knew her God, and she knew, according to Scripture, that God protected other threatened women like Tamar, like Ruth, like Rahab, and like Bathsheba. She knew from reading Scripture that her God was merciful. And if he was bringing her this challenge, that he would bring her through this challenge. And so in faith, Mary consented to God's plan for her life. In faith, Mary began to carry her cross before Jesus was even born. And in faith, Mary would suffer for the Messiah before the Messiah even suffered. So God's plan was cause for a little apprehension in her life. But at the same time, she was excited. Mary was excited because God's plan meant that all of the Anoine's dreams for Israel would come true. Everything her people, the Anoines, had been praying for, for justice to be done, for oppression to end, for the poor to be lifted up, all of this would be accomplished through her son, the Messiah, the future king of Israel. So I believe when Mary uttered those famous words of submission, I believe they were said with excitement. May it be, Lord, we have been praying so long for this day, God. We didn't think it was ever going to happen. So if this is how you want it all to begin, then let everything you have said about me come true. Let's do this. I'm ready. That's a departure from how we normally think about our little virgin Mary. But I would argue that's the real Mary. Now, how do we know that's the real Mary? How do we know that's an accurate interpretation of this dialogue? Because we don't know exactly how she said it. We can only read it. I would argue she said it like that because of what comes next. Mary breaks into song. You didn't realize it was a musical, but it was. She sings what we now call the Magnificat. Now, before we read it, and I'm going to read it to you, not sing it to you. Before we read it, though, we got to remember to read it through the eyes and the lens of the Anoine. You remember that this is being sung by a person who is desperately poor, who is marginalized, who is oppressed by King Herod and all of the powers that be. Now, historically, particularly in the Catholic faith, because they really focus on the Magnificat more than Protestants do, but historically, th the Magnificat was really just uh, evidence of Mary's pious faith. A and it is. But it's way bigger than that. I mean, when you see this, this is a song that praises God for cracking open the heavens to establish justice on earth and to root out unjust rulers. I mean, this song is dangerous to the powers that be because Mary predicts the power that will be. This song is so powerful. It is so revolutionary that in the 1980s in Guatemala, and I'm not making this up, you can Google it. In the 1980s in Guatemala, this song was banned from being publicly recited, for being seen as being too politically subversive. Banned. This was a song that if Herod had heard it, and mind you, Herod was threatened by just a baby being born and slaughtered children everywhere. If Herod had heard Mary singing this song, she would have been executed. This was the song that our Blessed Virgin Mary sung. 
She begins. My song, my soul glorifies. In other translations, you see magnifies. That's where the magnificat comes from. My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Why is she singing? What is she glorifying God about? She says, for he has been mindful of the humble state of my servant. So our translation says humble state. Other translations say my lowly state. But in the original Hebrew, that word was anawim. This is how we know she was in the anawim class, poor, marginalized, oppressed. This is what we miss every year. This is what has been hiding in plain sight for 2,000 years, and yet we never talk about it. This is what completely changes our perception of Mary and what I would argue the entire Christmas narrative for her. She continues, From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is His name. His mercy extends to those who fear Him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. She is so confident about what God is going to do that she's already speaking in the past tense. Now, what comes next? Mary is getting ready to make her big announcement. This announcement that is coming from the bottom of society, a voice from the boondocks crying out that justice has arrived. And I want you to watch how Mary ratchets up, gears up, the subversive, dangerous language. Speaking of God, he has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. And you know that word now. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. For anybody listening to her sing this song, for anybody who was oppressed or marginalized, this song that Mary was singing could only mean one thing. Herod would be overthrown and the poor would rise. It's incredible. But the magnitude of this song is lost on us. Scott McKnight, the author of the book that I mentioned earlier, he said the best way for us to understand the magnitude and the social implications of what Mary is singing is to think about the great anthem of the civil rights movement. We shall overcome. It is that groundbreaking. Now, having a proper understanding of the Magnificat is incredibly important for us as Christians. Because if Mary really did sing this song, and Luke tells us that she did, well, then we need to reevaluate the way we picture Mary. Because we picture Mary as being submissive, and she was. We picture Mary as being holy, and she was. And, and we picture Mary being humble. And she was. But, and this is such an enormous but, we have completely missed the fact that Mary was tenacious, resolved, gutsy, and courageous. She was, for all intents and purposes, a revolutionary. She was out there in the boondocks of society, from the margins of society, calling for the end of an oppression and the overthrow of the current despotic regime. This is no silent, blushing little woman. This is a fighter. This is Jesus' mom. 
nine months later. Jesus is finally born. And if you know the story, you know the shepherds come to visit. You know the wise men come to visit. And with each visitation, Mary is giving more and more confirmation that her son is, in fact, the Messiah, the King of Israel. Eight days after Jesus is born, Mary and Joseph take Jesus to the temple. They're going to get him circumcised, standard operating procedure for a Jewish boy. When they walk into the temple, they meet a very old man named Simeon. Scripture lets us know that the Holy Spirit told Simeon that he would not die until he saw the coming Messiah. And so when Mary and Joseph walk into the temple, Simeon lays eyes on that baby Jesus and he exclaims, Sovereign Lord, now let your servant die in peace as you have promised. I have seen your salvation, which you have prepared for all people. He goes on, he says, he is a light to reveal God to the nations. And he is the glory of your people, Israel. Whoa, whoa, whoa. This is new. I mean, up until this point, Mary had really locked onto the idea and been under the impression that her son would be the king of Israel. I mean, that he was coming to rescue her from, from the, their oppressors locally. But what Simeon is saying here is much bigger than that. Simeon continues. This child is destined to cause many in Israel to fall and many others to rise. He has been sent as a sign from God, but many will oppose him. And as a result, the deepest thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. And then he says something that would rock Mary's world. Something she had never expected to hear something that she would struggle with for the rest of her life. Simeon looks right at Mary, right into her eyes, and says, and a sword will pierce your very soul. Theologians debate as to what he exactly means by this, but I believe in this moment, Simeon was using language that only a mother would understand. In this moment, he's letting Mary know that her dreams of triumphant victory, they would happen. But it's not going to happen through military strength. It's not going to happen through a political revolution. Rather, it would happen through the death of her very soul, her precious child. One of Michelangelo's most famous works, the Pieta, I believe, when I look at this, I think it captures perfectly Mary coming face to face with what Simeon had prophesied 33 years earlier. For generations, Jewish folks had waited for the Messiah to come and to bring a sword. That when the Messiah arrived, he would release the oppressed. He would bring down unjust rulers and he would sit on the throne in Jerusalem. And that's why they were confused when they finally saw Jesus. This man who had been rejected, who was so maligned by his culture and so humble, it didn't add up for them. It wasn't what they were expecting. And as Simeon prophesied, it caused many of them to fall. 
what we learn from this is that the cross of Christ confounds our expectations. Because so many of us find ourselves in the same situation. We too have a preconceived notion of what we believe God to be. And how we believe salvation works. And yet when we finally are confronted with the cross of Christ, it rocks our world. Causing some of us to fall to our knees. And others to just I think it would take Mary years, years, to finally understand that unlike her expectations, the Messiah was not meant to just sit on a throne in Jerusalem, but rather to die a criminal's death on the cross in order to truly set us free. So what's the practical? What do you do with a message like this? If it's your first time here at DHC, every single week we throw this word on the screen because we want to make sure you can leave on a Sunday and know exactly what to do with what you've heard. So there is so much we can learn from Mary, so many things that we can pull from her life. But as I look at her story and and what she went through, I think there's one challenge that I can give to you that really will be meaningful, and it's this. Say yes to God and leave the consequences up to him. I mean, when Mary heard God's plan for her life, there were obvious and very scary consequences to God's plan for her life. There were any number of reasons she could have heard that plan and go, no, thank you. I'm going to go my own way. Imagine how her story would turn out if she did that. Imagine how our story would have turned out if she had done that. But in faith, she said yes, And she left the consequences up to God. So this Christmas season, my question to you is this. Are you afraid of something God is leading you to do? I don't know what it is in your life, but maybe God is speaking to you about a relationship. And he's calling you into some kind of next chapter there. Maybe God is speaking to you about your education. Maybe God is speaking to you about your career. Maybe it's about a move geographically. Maybe, maybe for you, you've heard the message of Jesus long enough. And you're this close. You are, I mean, you are this close to saying yes to Jesus. But you're afraid of the consequences. What what will my friends think or say if I say yes to Jesus? What might my family say if I were to say yes to Jesus? What might my spouse say if I say yes to Jesus? Maybe your spouse is no longer even here and you're worried about what that might look like. Don't wait. Do not wait. Maybe this Christmas God is pushing you, leading you, or inviting you to do something outside of your comfort zone. Mary knew because she knew her God. Mary knew that if God was bringing her to something, he would lead her through something. So trust him. Say yes to him. And leave the consequences to him. Because it could change your life. And maybe it could even change the world. So this Christmas, remember, it started with a mother whose faith was courageous.
Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for the life of Mary. Thank you for keeping her story safe all these years that we could hear about this, Lord. It's amazing to see that this woman who heard directly from you what your plan would be for her life and for the Messiah, struggled her entire life to fully come to grips with it. And, but that's all of us to understand what faith means. So God, I pray that this Christmas season, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would challenge us to take that next step of faith, whatever that might be. For some of us, it might be a career move, a relationship move, but for others of us, Lord, I know, I know for someone in this room, Lord, it is time, it is time, it is time to put our faith in Jesus. You sent him to this world not to conquer it through military strength, not to set us free from oppressors, Lord, but to set us free and to save us from our sins. Now is the time. Give us the strength and the courage to say yes and to put all the consequences in your hands. Thank you for the gift of life. Thank you for the gift of faith. We ask all this in Jesus' name.